Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show for Friday, October 28th. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law. The World Series begins on Friday night. We've got four great episodes in the feed this week, focusing very heavily on Phillies and Astros. So Keith and I are going to do something a little bit different. If you want World Series talk, listen to any or all of the previous four episodes. Don't listen to us. Turn it off right now. No World Series. Or here's the best thing you can do to help us out. Hit the mute button. Walk away for about 45 minutes and then come back, <laughs> unmute it, and you That's give us true. a play. Run the episode through. Yeah. Because then it still counts if you don't listen to it. That's that the best thing you can do for us if you want to help us out. Yeah, it seems like a pretty good plan, actually. I mean, it's generally what I do when you're talking. So. Yeah. Uh, and somehow we get a podcast out of that. It's kind of magical. I haven't answered a single question you've asked in two and a half years. It's just been a constant Keith monologue that I retroactively edit to fit into a podcast form because I'm a magician. Yes. Yeah. Very well done. Were you talking, by the way? I have you on mute, so I can't. You just saw a little bit of movement yeah, on the pretty video. Much. Pretty much. Yeah. Other stuff is happening, right? As it turns out, yes. Padres, Yankees facing busy and fun off seasons. We'll talk about what might be next for them. We found out on Thursday morning that David Stearns is stepping down as the president of baseball operations in Milwaukee. We'll dig into what that could mean. Adam Wainwright's coming back for another season, and we've got a few managerial hires as well. But I think mm -hmm. Padres and Yankees is where I wanted to begin. Padres specifically, because usually if the Yankees and Padres are in a conversation, the Padres have to wait. So guess what, Yankees? You're going to the, the later part of the rundown. <laughs> Keith, I thought the Padres were the team that, of the four teams in the LCS, they were the easiest if you were a neutral fan to get on board with, because yes. they're... They're a team that hasn't had that level of success before. They've never won a World Series. Young, exciting team, aggressive at the trade deadline. Plenty of reasons to just get on that bandwagon. And now they've got a lot of questions to sift through. I mean, I like the fact that they are spending like a big market team. I think the moves they made at the deadline will make a huge impact for them in 2023. And when you start to look at how this team is built, You've got the long-term pieces, the long, long-term pieces, right? Manny Machado is signed through 2028. Yep. Fernando Tatis Jr. is signed through 2034, a real year. Mm -hmm. Joe Musgrove is signed through 2027. But the thing you also have to think about is what happens with key players who will become free agents after 2023, right? That's you, Darvish, Blake Snell, and Josh Hader. So... Clearly, the Padres made the moves they've been making with the idea of 2023 being a part of their competitive window. Yep. As you look at where they fell short and what they'll need to do to get back even to the NLCS again, what is the top priority for them this offseason? That's a great question. I mean, this offseason, do you go in and say, this is 
this is it. Now, well, this isn't it in, the, in terms of the end, but this is right the last year that we have all of those players who have different levels of importance, obviously, to their odds of contending, advancing in the playoffs, etc. This is the last year we have all of those guys. So we need to put in a particularly strong push. And they could still do, look, they still have some prospects to trade. Obviously, it's thinned out quite a bit, but they still have guys they could trade. You know, I could see Jackson Merrill was one of the most impressive guys I saw in the Arizona Fall League. He was a former first round pick in 2021. He has uh, gotten quite a bit stronger. He looks like he's really going to hit for average. Power may or may not come in time. I'm willing to bet that it will eventually. He looks like he's going to stay at shortstop. I mean, that could be a guy they could use to headline yet another trade. I mean, eventually that well runs dry. And so I don't think they could do several of those, but they have the opportunity to go out and get maybe one more piece. The biggest thing for them is getting Tatis Jr. back on the field, not hurt, not suspended. I mean, there's no bigger addition than they can make than to go from literally not having him have a single at bat to maybe getting 120 games out of him. I don't even want to ask too much given his injury history, but a full season out of him is worth six to eight more wins. Um, and so, you know, they could say we were an 89 win team without him. We should be a 95 ish win team with him with a full ish healthy season from him, even if a couple other guys do backslide a little bit. So I could see them saying we're not going to do anything major because we get Tatis back, but it's also AJ Preller. He's going to do something. Maybe it's signing a free agent instead, but he's going, I, I absolutely think he'll do something. Um, you know, maybe it's just go get another pitcher, another starter, for example, because, you know, Blake Snell has been very up and down over the last couple of years because we saw in the playoffs things slipped kind of after the big three. I could see a couple of reasons for that. I don't know if there's really an ideal free agent for them kind of anywhere else. I mean, this is such a strong shortstop slash infield class, and they don't need that. Right, they with Tatis is back and Machado's at third. They don't need Carlos Correa. Not that they wouldn't be better. What are you going to do? Put him in left field? I guess you could sign him to play shortstop and put Tatis in the outfield. Yeah, I guess that's part of the where do they play Tatis question is. Well, what other moves are they going to actually make that could right. solve the puzzle completely? Uh, that's a frequent topic conversation in part because Ha Sung Kim was much better in year two in the big leagues. Great defensively, but Great even a, a tick above average offensively too, just in terms of the slash line. Another reminder that this yeah. year was so different. I mean, 251, 325, 383 was hey, 5% better hit. than league average. I'm taking the under on it. That's one of the guys I think will take a step back, but he can defend. He can definitely play short. I mean, do you take Tatis and you put him in the outfield? Do you take Tatis and say, we're going to put him at second? Well, I don't love moving a guy to second. Uh, when he's already had an injury history, I think that position is pretty hard on guys. So do you put Tatis in the outfield and just say, hey, go run around um, and hope that it keeps him healthier? And Because he's not a great defensive shortstop. I think Tatis is one of those guys who can play shortstop, but he's probably hurting you a little more than he's helping you. And if you have a better defensive shortstop there, that's the that's definitely the the choice for me. Kim is there, right? They're not going out and acquiring another shortstop to play there like we were just talking about a second ago. He's already there. So I think that's another possibility for them. I don't know what they've, if they've discussed that, if they would consider moving a player, they gave a contract until basically 
after the oceans have risen six feet and drowned us all, if they would consider moving that guy off shortstop. But I think that's a conversation they should have because it's about making the club better and maybe about improving his chances to stay healthy. Yeah, and I guess the other wrinkle here is if you move him to the outfield, does he play right field exclusively? Does he play right field against right-handed starters with Trent Grisham in center? And then when you face a lefty, do you put Grisham on the bench, maybe play Tatis in center? Is that an unrealistic ask to have him at least 30 or 40 games in center field with the rest of the time coming in right? When he was coming up and the, you know, when he was, I don't know, 18 or so, and the first talk was, hey, this guy can really hit the Padres have something. But there was a fair amount of talk of he's not going to stay at shortstop. And then within a year, you know, once he had that year where he was basically in low A and then finished a little bit in double A, I think it became pretty clear he had a chance to stay at shortstop. And the argument would be more, is he good enough to be an everyday shortstop on a championship club um, versus not? Like, right? As opposed to a conversation of, hey, this guy just can't play shortstop. But during that time, it was, well, where do you move him? Do you move him to third base? And the most logical... Um, alternative that I heard was, this guy can run. Why don't we try him in center? You know, so that's often where we put speedy shortstops. It's, I mean, he's not Billy Hamilton fast, but Billy Hamilton was an atrocious defensive shortstop who became an elite defensive outfielder because his speed, um, and because he had some instincts, because his speed really came into play. Could Tatis do that? I, I would like to see that. And I think Grisham, to me, is a dispensable player, right? You do not He's one where if you upgrade on him somehow, whether it's directly or moving some pieces around, Grisham is one of the spots in the lineup where you could make a real upgrade. And that's before even considering the fact that I wanted to fire him into the sun after whatever that bunt attempt was in the last game of the NLCS. I felt bad about that bunt for so many reasons. Um, Tactically, I didn't agree with it at all. I also felt bad about it because Trent Grisham was one of those guys that was having a really nice postseason after having a really rough ending to his time in Milwaukee in the playoffs. He was the player that made the error in the game yeah. where the Nats knocked out the Brewers. And it was just yeah. nice to see a guy that had that sort of bad goat moment on the field have a really nice run of October baseball. And then that bunt sort of erased that for a lot of people and yeah. will make a lot of Padres fans forget how good he was throughout most of October. By the way, he, had, he was worth, I just pulled up baseball reference. You can look at fan graphs too. Worth nearly two and a half war with a 284 on base and a 341 slug. I mean, that is baseball is broken to me. <laughs> you, you know, I, I mean, unless you are Willie Mays out there, that shouldn't be possible. And by the way, can you find somebody who can play defense like him and maybe post a 300 on base percentage? I don't think it should be that hard. He just did it in 2021 and he's not yeah. old. I can't figure out why the K rate jumped as much as it did. I mean, you look at the O swing percentage, you think, oh, maybe he's chasing more pitches outside the zone. Only a little bit. 23% O-swing percentage is actually very good. I don't know if he worked himself into a lot of bad counts or, or what exactly happened, but his line, the drop-off from Trent Grisham was one of the more surprising regular season drop-offs because I thought 2021 was a good baseline for him. Basically a league average bat, plenty of walks, ample strikeout rate. With that defense, like you mentioned, two to three win player, you're fine with that because you have five to seven win players at a few other spots. Yeah, the shocker was he's st- I mean issues with lefties. I think he's had that for a long time. He didn't hit right-handers. He was worse against right-handers this year. Now, I'm not saying that's going to sustain, right? I, I don't think that's a thing. That is not a, is there really a left-handed hitter who over a period of multiple years has shown better ability to hit left-handed pitching? Probably not. The way that you would construct that guy makes him not a big leaker at all, I would say. 
but he was atrocious against right-handed pitching. Is that just bad luck? I mean, a low BABIP across the board. We had 227 BABIP against right-handers this year. That's either a fluke or you're not a big leaguer. You just can't make good enough contact quality to be a big leaguer at that point. And I don't know, right? You said it is it's out of character with his previous career. I would bet on some kind of bounce back. If I were the Padres, I would also be looking at alternatives because it's one of the easiest spots, I think, for them to upgrade. Yeah, I'm absolutely with you there. So a well-constructed team that will have a few different choices to make in the offseason and ultimately should be in the mix for a playoff spot again, but it's just going to be, it's always a tough path. That's just the playoffs. It's the nature of the math of getting through each round that you can be that 90 to 95 win team and it might not go well for you in October, right? It feels like because of what happened in game four, the Saturday game of the Padres Philly series, they had the early lead and lost the early lead and it turned into a, a bullpen slugfest. That got away from them, you know, being mm-hmm. in, in a position to possibly win game five, losing that late, not bringing in Josh Hader to face Bryce Harper. That feels like a game that got away from them as well. It just, I hope for the sake of Padres fans that they at least get one more crack at it with this core. One other thing, unless I'm forgetting somebody, I don't think they have a first baseman, an incumbent first baseman on the roster, right? Meyer's a free agent, Bell's a free agent. Right. So... That might be the easiest thing for them to even easier than what we're talking about with the outfield too. go sign like Jose Abreu to a one or two year deal. I really don't want to get involved with Abreu for multiple years. I think he's starting to show some signs of age. He'll be 36 this year. Um, He had a huge power drop off this year. He still hit the ball very hard, but it's becoming, I think, increasingly clear. The power is tapering off and you can get to him. You can sort of beat him with velocity more than certainly you ever could before, say, 2021. So. This is not a guy you want to make a long-term investment in, but a short-term one. They could also bring back Josh Bell. I like Josh Bell. I think there's, um, I know Josh Bell was not good for them, and maybe that precludes the possibility of him returning, but I do think Josh Bell's a pretty valuable everyday first baseman, especially maybe first base and some DH, and you can cycle him back and forth. Obviously, defense will never be his strong suit, but he gets on base, he has power. I like those things. Who do you prefer of the two? Is Abreu your fallback option to Bell if Bell goes elsewhere, or do you actually want Abreu more for the short term, for a year? Right. If you're trying to say right, Abreu has, Abreu brings the risk, any player in the back half of his 30s, but especially a guy on that end of the defensive spectrum, no speed, not an athlete, no defensive value. What always worries me about those guys is I think historically when it goes, it's just gone, right? You don't tend to get a lot of warning. We've actually seen a little bit of that with him, right? I think in 21 and 22, especially if you look at some of the batted ball data, it's clear he's not really the same guy that he was from when he debuted through 2020 when he won the MVP award. That he shouldn't have, but still, he had a good year. 2021, some of it was masked because the superficial stats were there. And in 2022, kind of had similar batted ball data to 2021, but his homers dropped by half. And now suddenly it's like, oh, there might be something going on under the hood here. And I think that um, he would scare me even on a two-year deal, I'd be worried. But if you're saying, who do you feel better about short-term performance, um, about production just in 2023, I'd probably put a little more on a break. If the question were, who are you giving a three- to four-year deal to, it's Bell because of age. And because I do think Bell, you know, honestly, outside of 2020, he's been pretty good the last couple of years. Uh, I think 2020 was the one season where he was kind of dizzy kind of a disaster. In the other three seasons, he was an above average everyday player at first base. But there's some volatility there. And Abreu brings you more certainty. So it kind of depends on what their organizational goals are and what sort of contract they're willing to give. If they're 
you know, if they're if they're fine signing Bell for three or four years um, and accepting that they might get a little bit less production in 23, then I do like him better. When I do my free agent rankings next week, he's going to be higher than Abreu because he's younger and I'd give him more money. But the Padres organizational goals might be a little different than the organizational goals of most other teams getting involved in free agency. Yeah, and that's where I think that list of important players all hitting free agency after next season might steer them more into the, the one year, the shorter term deal with a player like Abreu. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's talk about the Yankees for a bit, Keith. Getting swept by the Astros certainly didn't help the, the tenor of the conversation around Twitter.com and elsewhere. But I don't think it would be a totally different conversation either if we were talking about a, a game that went a series that went six games and the Yankees still lost. I think there'd still be a lot of frustration and disappointment sure. and all the sure. things that you always get. No team in baseball has higher expectations than the Yankees. Mm-hmm. No one does. That's just simple fact of the matter. That happens. You win 27 World Series, you tend to expect to win one every year. Okay, fine. Mm-hmm. So Aaron Judge is a free agent. We haven't talked about that at all this year. The left side of the infield needs to be upgraded, but they've got mm-hmm. internal options. Yeah. A few weird things about this team. You've got Josh Donaldson still under contract for another year. So that's over 20 million plus a buyout. You mm-hmm. got one more year of Anthony Rizzo. And then you've got a few late arbitration players sprinkled up and down the roster. The core guys here, Garrett Cole through 2028, John Carlos Stanton through 2027. A lot less about the long-term future is in place right now with the Yankees. So I know the judge question sort of has to come first, because if you don't retain judge, then you're going and doing some very different looking things with this roster. Mm-hmm. Is judge staying in New York or is he going somewhere else? My guess is he stays in New York because if they really want to keep him, they can, right? They have even ignoring the fact that they have, you know, if they were to have any advantage because it's the only organization he's ever played for and maybe he has some kind of additional attachment to them. They have the resources. They shouldn't be beat on money. I I wonder if was, they offered him an extension last winter and he turned it down. I think at the time there was a sense it was probably a little on the low side. Now, of course, it looks comically so. And I wonder if that was some hesitation about hitters. His size have a terrible track record historically in baseball. Like none, nobody his height, 6'7", has been any good after age 33 or 34. I think Frank Howard kept going for about two years. And by 35, he was done. And he's it. He's the only example. Everyone else, Tony Clark, Richie Sexton, those are the best of them. They were done at 31. And Judge will be, I think, 31 in the first year of any deal. So I don't know if that was part of the Yankees thinking. I do think, though, there's nothing they can do that's better for the club next year than keeping Aaron Judge. Just as a baseball consideration, and it ain't my money, and the Yankees have plenty of it. And if they want to try to worry about the luxury tax, that's their own damn fault, right? This is a club that should be like, screw it. We play in New York with the most valuable franchise in Major League Baseball. I think they are. They were. They have been. Act like it. And they should be going out and spending. And there's nothing better they can do, I think, given what else they have and what their needs are 
than signing Aaron Judge. That's not saying he's the best free agent on the market, but I think he might be the best specific fit for them. You know, I want to address also you just something you said earlier, because I wrote a column about, you know, what could the Yankees do this offseason? So it's fix the offense is really what they need to do. And I said at the top, you know, this whole idea, they got swept out of the ALCS. They need to fire Cashman and fire Boone. If you want to talk about whether Cashman or Boone should be replaced, let's have a more reasoned conversation about their decisions over a period of more than a week, right? If you want to say Brian Cashman's been the GM for obviously for forever and has made a lot of moves that haven't worked out, great. We can have that conversation. That's not this conversation. That's certainly not what I was seeing hearing in the wake of the four-game sweep, this idea, oh, they lost. Cashman's got to go. If you're firing a GM or a manager because you lost a playoff series, unless the manager like you know shot his own starting pitcher in the middle of the game, that's probably overreacting. That should, especially a decision like that, firing a GM has to be based on a larger body of work than that. And a lot of people took my article to mean I was saying Cashman is above criticism or there should be no conversation about firing Cashman. It's kind of not, that's certainly not what I thought I was writing. I guess it didn't come off that way. Um, you know, and I think Cashman's had some moves that have worked out and some that really haven't. And you can have a fair conversation about his tenure. I also don't think he is in any way the reason they got swept out of the ALCS. For whatever you think he did wrong, it was basically a 100-win team that got within four wins to get into the World Series. That's generally a pretty good out. For most franchises, that would be a good outcome. I think you and I talked about this at some point in the second half. It did seem strange to me that the Yankees, with the needs at shortstop specifically, Mm -hmm. and having two capable young shortstops in the upper levels of the minor leagues, didn't get a look at Peraza or Volpe earlier than they did. Volpe didn't come up at all, and Peraza came up very late. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if you want to look at certain things that happened this year and and question that, that's one of the things I'd want to know more about. I wonder why they didn't really think Peraza, at least, would be a better option than Kiner Falefa closer to maybe the All-Star break. Why wasn't that a possibility? But I think that's not going to make the difference in this series either. That doesn't close the gap between the Astros and the Yankees in the ALCS. The best argument is that the Yankees lost to a better team. The one team in the American League that was, I think, unequivocally better than the Yankees. Second best run prevention in baseball, just a shade behind the Dodgers. Um, that's before, you know, considering ballpark adjustments at all. And nothing the Yankees were going to do, especially in the second half of the season, was going to close that gap entirely. They were hoping for a little good luck. In that series. I think most folks pick the Astros. I pick the Astros. Um, I'm picking the Astros to win the World Series. Even though as a Philly resident, I think I'd rather see the Phillies win. Um, I'm not planning on climbing any poles if they do, but um, I will. Uh, it's fun to be around when the local teams win things. Um, like when the Eagles won the Super Bowl, I lived around here and it was awesome. It's fun. Um, anyway, I would say I, I agree with you. I think failing to give Peraza more of a look sooner is, was surprising. Um, because Kiner Falefa was acquired basically for defense. His defensive numbers were down this year. One-year defensive numbers are not that definitive. You need a longer look than that. Um, he also can't hit. I mean, that to me is the biggest issue was the, the trade for Kiner Falefa. When they made it, my immediate reaction was, okay, great. They got their backup shortstop. Now, now who are they going to go get? And that was it. They never went and got an actual shortstop. And so at this point, I'm assuming with a bit of hindsight, maybe the plan all along was to just keep it open for Volpe, um, who I do think stays at shortstop and I think has a chance to be a, a, a superstar. 
And he's homegrown also. Like, I mean, local. He's a local, you know, northern New Jersey kid. There may be other factors there. But I thought the idea was he was their first round pick. He emerged in 21 as a legit top 10 overall type prospect. I think he is very much that guy. And maybe that was the decision. Uh, it, it definitely left them handcuffed over the course of 21, though. They just got nothing out of shortstop. And they, were got, they got no offense from behind the plate. They got defense, obviously, from Trevino. But they punted kind of on two positions, at least offensively. And I don't think that's the right strategy for them going into next year. And if they want to play one of those kids at shortstop, maybe it starts as Peraz and it ends up Volpe at some point, they should really be looking to upgrade at third base then. Because Donaldson kind of looks cooked. And given his age, what we saw from him down the stretch, especially against better pitching, there's always a chance there's something more in there. But I think if you're the Yankees, you're not comfortable with that risk. And one of those two positions, you have to go out. This is a market with four very, very good to superstar type players who could play, who are natural shortstops and could move to second or third. You really should be getting one. With Donaldson, too, I was looking into this during the weekend because Mm – I thought the quality of contact he makes with the ability to draw walks, with the low K rate we've seen from him a long time, as much as a player can age gracefully in his late 30s, I thought he had all the characteristics that would do that. And we saw a big drop in walk rate, saw him go from 13.6% to 9.9%. The K rate went through the roof. He was at 21% in 2021, up to Mm 27.1%. That's a huge jump. Worst O-swing percentage of his career. Slugging percentage was down over 100 points in the previous year. And then he had a shoulder injury. And if you look back at the numbers before the shoulder injury in April and May, those numbers were better. That looked more like the late career mm-hmm. Josh Donaldson season, the Yankees and projections and people were probably expecting. So you could look at it as a health-driven decline yes. where he lost a lot more because of the injury. He lost a little because of age and lost a lot because of health. But then you're also looking at a 37-year-old third baseman with a injury history that spans back prior to 2022 that is actually pretty scary. So you should have a better option at third base, even if it's not someone to outright come in and take the job right away. It's got to be someone else that you trust to play that position on a semi-regular basis. At a minimum, you have to have that. That is kind of what I was trying to get at both in the article and what I just said. is I don't know for sure that Donaldson is just done, right? It could be the injury. It could be the shoulder. That would be a logical explanation. He's also pretty old. If you're the Yankees, you know, if you're a non-contender, a fringe contender, or, or a budget-strapped contender, you might say, we're going to hope that he bounces back. The Yankees, they don't have to do that, and they shouldn't act like it. I mean, that to me is, you know, this is a club where, where again, they have no, yeah, they I'm sure they don't want to pay the luxury tax, but they can pay the luxury tax. And they should be paying the luxury tax to put a better team out there. And I think upgrading over Donaldson, and maybe you dump Donaldson, maybe you ask, see if some other team would take that chance that he bounces back for $5 million and the Yankees pay the rest. But you got to go get some, I think, more guaranteed production. Especially if, as I said, you want to bring in uh, one of the kids at shortstop. I don't think, and you know, obviously, I'm right about prospects. I'm I am in favor of bringing on young players. I don't think the Yankees is a team that's absolutely trying to win the division, should be trying to break in multiple prospects, uh, young players to start the year. You know, if over the course of the season injuries or other moves necessitate that, sure, great to have depth at AAA. But I think they should go into next season and say, we're breaking in one of these guys. 
Maybe it's Peraza to start and you hope it's Volpe at some point later. Maybe it's just Volpe. He only had about two weeks in AAA at the very end of the season, which is why I'm saying um, they might hesitate to bring him up at the very start of the season. But Peraza's been up and he's actually probably a better defender at short than Volpe is. None of Volpe's star upside is a hitter. But if you're going to do that, then you also don't want a giant question mark over at third base who was awful at the plate this year, looked like he was finished, and also has a pretty lengthy injury history. I guess the other related question to all of this is if you're retaining Judge and you want to get help on the left side of the infield to play third base, who is the target? It's a reasonably tricky class if you need third base help because the options are old. Justin Turner, Evan Longoria are players nearing the end of their career. It's the same problem as Donaldson. You're not you're not getting a lot better going with one of those two guys. Is it taking someone who's a shortstop, signing them and moving them to third base? Is it you know something like that with Xander Bogarts, for example? Like what's your what's your preferred target? Who's your preferred target if you're trying to find that player? Yeah, I mean that's what I basically what I suggested in my column was pick one of them and move them to third. I mean, if you're the Yankees, you start at. Cor- I think Correa is the best available. I've also. You know, Correa has stayed at shortstop much longer than I forecasted. I thought he, and he's gotten big, but I thought he was going to get so big he'd have to move. He's put up some pretty good numbers at shortstop defensively. Um, I think this past year was not one of them, but in general, yes. Uh, And so do you just say, hey, this guy's going to move to third at some point. We just signed Correa. I mean, if you offer Correa enough money, he's going to say, yeah, I'll move to third base. Sure. Right. When they got A-Rod, who was a better defensive shortstop than Jeter at the time, A-Rod moved to third base. Why? Because of money. It's amazing how quickly that'll change somebody's mind. And so that's essentially what I would do is kind of start at the top. Now, maybe internally they don't have Correa as high as I do. Maybe they have somebody else higher. Whoever you think is the best of those guys and then start working your way down. They also have the other option of taking signing somebody and moving them to second, right? Gliber Torres has not been – he's really just never turned into the player I thought he'd be. And I don't know how much of that is blame, you could blame on him missing time for injuries, or did he just never develop? I don't know. But again, another position where they could probably use more. He wasn't the biggest problem for them or the second biggest problem. They didn't get a whole lot out of second base. So that's another option. They have this weird kind of flexibility that you wouldn't associate with a big market, high payroll team where you think, well, they're going to have a big contract there and a big contract there and a big contract there. And they only have maybe one or two spots where they could do something. No, they've got maybe five where they could get really creative. And could go sign a couple of guys. You know, if they don't want Wilson Contreras, the catching market after him is not very good. And maybe they say, you know, we'll punt catcher offense again. Let Trevino be the primary catcher because he's so good defensively. Fine. Punt one spot, not three in your line. Because I do think that was a little bit of an issue. If you're going to highlight something in the playoffs, was outside of the Yankees' first four or five, it dropped off really quickly in that lineup. But when you're facing a team's best starters too, that mismatch is even more glare. That was one of my arguments on the World Series preview show. I think the Phillies are better equipped to try and deal with Houston's pitching than the Yankees were. It's still a tough matchup, yeah, I but agree. I just think the lineup is stronger. The secondary contributors, you went behind Aaron Judge and you could start picking nits in everybody in the Yankees lineup. It's a little harder to do that with the way the Phillies have built offensively. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network, you're there to look for jobs, you're there to post jobs. 
And how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. Some other big news. I mentioned this up top. David Stern stepping down as the president of baseball operations in Milwaukee. Based on what we know as of Thursday morning, Keith, he's going to stay in an advisory role with the club for 2023 and doesn't know his future beyond that, or at least didn't want to share what he thinks about his future beyond that, which, you know, that could be entirely true. But nevertheless, Matt Arnold moves into David Stearns' role. Matt Arnold was the GM. That front office has been together for a few years. So as much as there can be continuity in a situation like this, there actually Mm -hmm. seems like there's a good bit of continuity a lot of people are just wondering if Stearns is setting himself up for one of the bigger market jobs that will inevitably become available in the next year or two, right? If he's angling for a job with the Yankees, the Mets, the Astros, whichever whichever one of those spots he wants or whichever one opens up first, is that a reasonable thing to expect? And since those jobs are not immediately open right now, this is the first step towards being ready to go when they come available again. Yeah, uh, that's. I think that's about 95% likely. Funny when that news came down this morning, the, I got multiple texts from people. First one suggested the Mets, second one suggested the Astros. I think those are the two most likely destinations. There could be other reasons why he stepped down, when he stepped down, but it does seem certainly most likely those are two franchises that have been reported to have had interest or and or inquired for permission on Stearns previously. The Astros one is extremely bizarre to me. There have been rumors for a while that Jim Crane doesn't like James Click. I mean, all James Click did was continue to like actually dealing with a depleted system too, and a very depleted (laughs) baseball operations department. Staffed back up, made several good, small but effective moves on the uh, with the major league roster. They won more games than any team in the American League and haven't lost a playoff game and are now in the World Series. And you're gonna fire that guy? I mean, that makes I think we all knew Crane was maybe not the best human. Um, That's quite a competition in baseball circles. But I mean, makes him look like a lunatic if he's going to fire slash not extend the GM in that situation. You know, I, again, not just judging Click by the playoffs. His moves keep working. They're doing a really good job. I also think they're doing things like drafting better because He's changed the approach from basically just drafting off an analytical model to reincorporating traditional scouting, along with one of the most advanced R&D departments there is. People think enough of the Astros' operations that their farm director just got plucked by the Giants to be the GM, Pete Patilla. So the rest of the industry looks at the Astros and still sees a model. And Jim Crane looks down and sees a problem? I mean, check your mirrors? very unusual didn't even realize there was uh, any possible 
issue there. So that's an interesting thing to to bring to the table. As far as the Brewers go, they're one of those teams that you look at and the window could close somewhat quickly. The strength for me continues to be the starting pitching. Mm-hmm. So long as you have a healthy combination of Corbin Burns, Brandon Woodruff, and Freddie Peralta, mm-hmm. if you have that three and you're getting good mileage out of your, your next few starters, you can contend in the NL Central. They're above average offensively, but they have flaws. They have struck out too much for several years. So if you said, Derek, we're going to get your input on the Brewers, what would you fix? I would try to find a bat or two that significantly improves the swing and miss in the lineup. Yeah, and their system had kind of bottomed out and has bounced back. They've had a couple of successful drafts the last few years. You know, Garrett Mitchell is going to be a big leaguer, maybe just an average one, but he's a big leaguer. Tyler Black uh, is has come very quickly. He might be some kind of super sub, I think a pretty good big leaguer. Sal Freelich is coming quickly. And then they signed a pretty big class of international prospects that is also going to produce a couple of maybe very good big leaguers with Jackson Churio ranked third on my midseason prospects list. They're actually, they're in better shape. A year ago, I looked at the Brewers and said, they better go all in now because this is going to end hard and they could crash and that major league roster could get ugly in a hurry, especially if they suffered a pitching injury or two. And they did this year. Obviously, they lost a lot of Peralta. That's probably the number one reason they didn't get to the playoffs. But the fact is they got very close to the playoffs and I don't see a a fallow period. Maybe it's a year or two out of the playoffs, but it's not a long period where they're out of it. There's enough helping help coming in the system that I think and, you know, from a couple of little like I think the Josh Hader trade will help them uh, a bit with the major league roster in, in 23 also. I think they're contenders again, and I think they can continue to be so. And I think for Matt Arnold, it is a a lot of stay the course. Now, I don't know if he'll have different feelings on other things. Like, for example, to see, you know, Stearns is very sort of famously anti-scout and uh, gutted the scouting staffs across the board in Milwaukee. It, does Arnold go in a different direction there? Uh, maybe. He's got a scouting background himself, so it wouldn't surprise me to hear that he did that. But in terms of the major league roster and even the upper levels of the minors, I would say they're they're on a good path to remain contenders for most of the next six years. In terms of postseason appearances and just being there frequently, there has not been a better stretch in franchise history for the Brewers than Stearns' tenure as GM and eventually president of baseball operations. So I know there are there are fans who are so upset about the Josh Hader trade that they're grading him solely on that and not looking at the bigger picture. Seems like a great idea. I realized there were implications in the clubhouse in terms of frustration and chemistry, and it it did have some effect aside from on-field production. There were a lot of reasons why that trade didn't work out, but you have to look at the bigger picture if you're trying to evaluate what he really did. I think it's interesting, too, because this club actually has a little bit of money to spend this offseason relative to its 2022 payroll. So if ownership is on board with running a payroll in that 130 maybe $140 million range again, they could actually go out and find an impact player or two kind of from the the second tier of free agency. They're not going to be going after the Trey Turner level elite of the elite free agents, but they can actually address some of their shortcomings via free agency. Yeah, I would agree with that. I don't, I mean, I, I don't think ownership there is going to spend huge. And the problem is they have spent huge in a couple of places. It hasn't gone great. Lorenzo Cain contract, right? That didn't work out well. The Christian Yelich contract is looking like 
it's probably going to be a pretty large albatross for them. It's one I think they would love to be able to shed at some point. Um, and so I don't know if that makes, I don't know if ownership then, Fanonazio then says, I don't want to spend big anymore because I've been burned. Or does he say, well, the guy making those decisions is no longer making those decisions. And maybe I'm a little more open-minded about that going forward. But I'd be very surprised if they were playing in the deep end of the free agent pool. And I'm not sure that they absolutely need to. It also helps that the division is just not good, right? It's them and a Cardinals team that will be very good, but not elite. Again, they're certainly not unbeatable next year. And I think probably the other teams are in varying stages of trying to figure it back out. Yeah, I think the state of the division paired with the timing that you still have with Woodruff and Burns specifically, Mm -hmm. that keeps you going. And there's got to be at least some chance that you consider trading one of those guys when you consider how much you can get back in terms of long-term talent. Or do you re-up? Or do you extend them? Yeah. I mean, they could. This is the other thing, right? They can afford it. It's Mm -hmm. a major league franchise. They can afford it. Ownership can afford it. They will cry poverty. If they choose to trade one, I shouldn't say they will. If they end up trading one of those guys, well, we really tried to work out an extension with him, but you know we're a small market and we play in a, just a small town with one traffic light and we just can't afford... Please, these guys can afford it. They could pay Corbin Burns $30 million a year and he's worth that. You know, I, recognizing there's always hesitancy to do this with a pitcher versus a position player, but still, they, they can absolutely afford to extend. They could probably afford to extend both of those guys, but I could also see them saying, we're going to pick one. We're going to pick one, hope we picked correctly. And then trade the other one. That might be the most prudent course of action to say, we're going to keep one because it's real hard to find and create these guys. But at the same time, the opportunity of the value of trading one of these guys now is pretty substantial. You can make a franchise altering type of trades. Difficult, risky. That's the one you don't really have pro scouts, but you can do that. You could potentially go and land a couple of other pretty big pieces. I mean, I think the Nationals added more prospect talent just in the Juan Soto trade than they probably already had in their system before the trade. Um, we'll see if it works out that way. But they added three, four pre, if you still count Abrams, probably doesn't qualify for the list anymore. But yeah, that's a pretty huge package of talent coming back. You may not get exactly the same thing for Burns or Woodruff, but you can get a couple of big, young pieces who can help your franchise go forward and help you continue to work with a lower payroll than other clubs with whom you might be directly competing. Because I do think at some point, the Cubs will be good enough that maybe the Ricketts will spend again. Now I say that out loud and it sounds ridiculous. I think you can make that assumption, even though it does sound ridiculous to say it out loud. Choosing one or the other for long-term extensions with the Brewers makes more sense to me than giving both the long-term extensions they deserve. It's because of their own self-imposed limits. I think it seems strange to put 30 plus million dollar contracts on two pitchers at the same time if you're not running a 250 or 300 million dollar payroll, which let's be serious, they're never getting to right, that that's sort not of level. Going to happen. So it is going to be probably choosing one or the other. And again, it depends on what the offers are and what's out there. Should be a busy offseason in Milwaukee. A couple things on the managerial and other news front. Adam Wainwright coming back for 2023 does plan to retire at the end of the season. So just kind of a heads up there since we're talking about the NL Central. A few managerial hires. Bruce Bochy to the Rangers. Skip Schumacher to the Marlins. John Schneider to the Blue Jays. Two vacancies left, Keith. White Sox and Royals, I believe, still looking for new managers. So as far as I know. Any of these hires. And, and with Schneider, it's the removal of the interim label. Correct. 
any of these decisions big difference makers within the range that a manager can change things about a club. The thing I said the other day about Skip Shoemaker with the Marlins is we don't know. Nobody knows what he's like as a manager because he's never managed. He's never run a club for even half a season. He's never managed in the minors. He's never managed in winter ball. Um, and I have never liked those hires. Um, I always think you would rather hire a guy with experience. I don't care if it's one year of managing an A-ball club. There is huge value in that experience, both in terms of on-field and off-field. And in having to do that day in and day out over a long period of time, um, I think there's substantial learning value for the candidate. And I think that we can glean a lot from having that, from seeing that experience on someone's resume, as opposed to, well, he nailed the interview. Jesus, I could nail the interview, right? If you wanted it, you don't want me managing a club, but I could go in and say the right things and sound really smart. Um, I pretend to do this all the time on this podcast. That's not the point, right? I don't have the experience. I don't have the resume. Nobody should be hiring me to manage um, a coffee shop. I'd actually probably be better at that than managing a baseball team now that I think about it. But to me, just it is, if I'm a Marlins fan, eh, okay, we'll see. Maybe it's Craig Council, right? Who actually was not very good, I think, his first year or two with the Brewers and really grew and learned and became a good manager. By about year three or so, he was really good. And I still think he is, actually. I think he's a positive, he's a net positive for the Brewers. But you just can't know with a hiring like that. I will say just in general, too, with Schneider and with Thompson, obviously, Thompson's done a wonderful job with the Phillies. How could you possibly argue with that? At the same time, that's a lot of, we got to get rid of this guy. Who's Who's handy, right? Is anyone, hey, can you just see it? Is John in his office? Yeah, you're the manager now. What happened, you know, if you're the Blue Jays, I'm not saying John Schneider is a bad manager here, but what's wrong with just doing a full search and going out and looking at other candidates? And there might be somebody outside the organization. There might be somebody, there might be candidates from diverse backgrounds who we've not actively considered because there aren't as many of those in our organization. What is wrong? With doing the more exhaustive search. And then if at the end of that, you have done your due diligence and come back and say, the guy we have is actually the best guy, I would feel a lot better about that as opposed to just, yeah, we're just taking the interim tag off. It, it's good for you that you were nearby when we needed a manager. I think for me, as someone who's never worked in an organization, especially, I have no feel for the actual needs that an organization has with the manager. I, I don't really know what matters to the people that make the decision when they make the decision. For me, from the outside, mm -hmm. the strangest first-time manager hire I can remember, and this is fairly recent, Aaron Boone. Because he went from retiring as a player. He's working at ESPN. Yeah, he went. He spent eight years in the booth. Yep. And then the Yankees fired Joe Girardi, and all of a sudden, Aaron Boone was their manager. And it was like, wait a minute. I know in the bloodlines, there, there's managerial experience within... Your family, but sure. I don't think that was necessarily passed down. So I, I just thought that was a really strange one because it's the Yankees' job, yeah, right. And you don't need any managerial experience to take that job, and you didn't have to even be working as anything on the field in the previous eight years to get that. Yeah, and the well, he nailed the interview, right? And I think there are a lot of Yankee fans that want Aaron Boone's head right now. And again, I'm not firing a guy over you know, a couple of maybe suboptimal moves in a playoff series. But yeah, this guy had never managed before. I know Aaron, you know, I may be a little bit biased. I, I liked working with him. But, you know, again, he was an inexperienced guy who came in and crushed the interview. And 
there's a whole lot of there's a whole host of biases that can come into play when you're basically making the decision off of that and ignoring the resume entirely. And I won't hijack this whole podcast to go on that rant, but it's not the ideal process. And we've had a lot of these, you know, we've had more inexperienced managers hired, I think, in the last 10 years or so, maybe in the previous 30. It used to be to be a big league manager, you had to work your way up through the system. And there were issues with that too. But now we've swung the other way. It's like managing in the minors doesn't really matter. To which I would say, why would anyone want to manage in the minors at this point? If that's not a path to, if there's no upward mobility in that jobs, screw that. I'm going to go do something else. But also you're just foregoing the, the best candidate pool you could possibly have. The guys who've managed in your own system, you've gotten to see day in and day out and work with and understand how they manage players, how they handle in-game decisions, how they manage both up and down, which is a huge part of the manager's job. You have a group of players, you have a group of coaches who ostensibly report to you, and then you are reporting upward to player development or to a general manager. You get all of that stuff. You hire a guy, Skip Shoemaker's never done any of that. And you have no idea. You can't even ask. You could ask the Cardinals, what was it like to have Skip Shoemaker on the bench? I mean, he he sat on the bench real good. At least there's in dugout experience, though, like at least some with Boone, there was zero. There was zero. Yes. I don't put a lot of stock in bench coaching experience. You are a, a top lieutenant. And that role, that role could vary from organization to right, organization no as idea. far as what you're asked to do. So yes. I, I think, it, again, I think this is hard to judge on the outside. And then with the Boone example, they have a 603 regular season winning percentage yeah. with him. Would they have the same with someone else? We don't know. That's the, 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 the thing I keep coming back to. I don't know if Skip's going to be a good manager or not. I just don't know. I don't think the Marlins really know either. And that's what would upset me as a Marlins fan is this is not good process. It can have a good outcome. Bad process doesn't always lead to bad outcomes. That's more likely. That's the way to bet. It could have a good outcome. He could turn out to be really good. It could turn out that he's secretly a managerial genius and just nobody tapped into it before. I'm saying I'm not being sarcastic saying that. That's quite possible. We just don't know. The lack of understanding of the process as far as like what exactly were they looking for and mm-hmm. did they really find it? We will learn, I guess, over time. We are going to go on our way out. A quick reminder, you can get a subscription to The Athletic for a dollar a month for the first six months at theathletic.com slash baseball show. Find Keith on Twitter at Keith Law. I am at Derek Van Riper. Enjoy the World Series games this weekend. The Athletic Baseball Show returns on Monday. Mm-hmm.